ladies and gentlemen, in your lifetime and in my lifetime, we have gone all the way in the culture from Madonna singing Papa Don't Preach into the churches and the churches are saying preachers don't preach. The time will come when they will have itching ears and they will turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables myths. But Paul gives a word concerning apostasy and with a note of urgency he says to the young preacher, Preach the word! That's what God wants the preacher to do in this day. Open your Bibles please to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. What a joy to be with all of our friends and this fine group of people and the Sword of the Lord Conference. Dr. Rice wrote to me, as he wrote, I'm sure, to the other speakers, and just mentioned that he wanted to say the things in this conference to give the message that he felt would serve for soul winning. And, of course, that's in the line of thought that I have all the time. And tonight I want to speak to you on the matter that I trust will serve as somewhat to do what God wants us to do. Ezekiel 33 and verse 7. Familiar words, words that you've used and preached on many, many times, pastors here tonight. So thou, son of man, hast set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Every 41 minutes, they tell us, someone stains his hands with the blood of another in America. A tragic, tragic fact. Every 41 minutes, someone stains his hands with the blood of another in America. A little town out from us near Chattanooga, South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, is stirred up tonight. They're stirred up because a few hours ago, some man took a little girl, five years old, and assaulted her. Then took her body and cut it in two, apparently with a knife, a butcher knife, or an axe, chopped it in two, five years old. That town's mad. They're upset. It's in the newspapers. This is a tragic thing, an awful thing. But my dear friend, here's something else. Look at your Bible. If I fail to warn the wicked, if I fail to tell men about what's coming, what's going to take place, his blood will I require fine hand. This old-fashioned fact of bloody hands is something that ought to disturb all of us. And in a conference like this, where Dr. Rice has dedicated his life to the matter of soul winning, puts it on every conference, is written on every book and everything that he has, the matter of soul winning, this one thing that we must be doing, we should be doing all of the time, to glorify the Lord and to obey Him. His blood will I require fine hands, bloody hands. Number one. Every preacher is a watchman. This is our main business. Every preacher is a watchman. There are no exceptions. There are no exemptions. This is your task and this is mine. I'm to be a soul winner. I must not fail my Lord. I'm to establish myself in the community where I live as one who is concerned about others. And I must so give my message and live my life day by day that other people will know that I have a concern for their souls. Every preacher is a watchman. But some are not. I had an invitation for a two-day meeting, and I conduct these all of the time, Monday and Tuesday only. And I was up in a certain city, and the pastor met me at the airport and took me down to his church. 
It was a beautiful place, magnificent, new building. I stepped inside up on the platform, and I stood there a little while, and I said, Pastor, this is the nicest church I think I've ever seen. It was beautiful, really beautiful. He said, yes, I think it's nice. We like it. Well, I looked around a little bit, looked right in the baptistry, and in the baptistry I noticed beautiful flowers, not growing flowers, but artificial flowers, but beautifully arranged in the baptistry. And so I just said, I looked up there and said, Sir, I'm, I just wonder about how many folks have you baptized in the last year? That's an ordinary question. He waited a few moments and said, Well, not very many. And he turned away a little bit and then he walked away from me. So I turned to the man who was with him, his Sunday school superintendent, and I said, Sir, uh, maybe I said the wrong thing. And maybe I embarrassed him somewhat, but I'd just like to know, are you a soul-winning church? Do you win people to the Lord? I said, how many folks have been saved and baptized in the last 12 months in your church? And my friend, this is no exaggeration. Just what he said. He said, Brother Robertson, I shouldn't say it. But he said, we have not put water in the baptistry in 13 months. We have never baptized a convert in 13 months. Not one single. He said we had never moved the flowers out of the, out of the baptistry, just like you see them now in the, in the past 13 months. He said, I'm embarrassed about it. I know it's wrong. I know something's wrong. No, wait a minute. The pastor was a fundamental man. He preached the Word of God. He believed the Word of God. But somehow, he had allowed himself to be turned to certain angles of thought and, uh, and away from the main business of telling people they're lost and that Christ is the only Savior. Had avoided that. And consequently, Sunday after Sunday, no one saved, no one baptized, nothing happening. Now, I preached only two nights. My preaching is very, very simple. The first night, Monday night, people were saved. Second night, Tuesday night, people were saved. Thursday, uh, Wednesday night, he baptized converts for the first time in 13 months. What I'm indicating is this, that if we show a concern for souls, somebody's going to get saved. Somebody's going to walk down the aisle. Something's going to happen every time. And this is our business. Every preacher is a watchman. Every preacher is to concern himself about souls all of the time, never failing, never changing, never giving up. This is it. This is our ministry. This is our work. And in this we must not fail. I preach ordinarily in Baptist churches. I'm a Baptist, and I like Baptists, and I preach in Baptist churches most of the time. I had a man invite me to come and be in his church. He wasn't a Baptist, and so I held off a little bit. And... Uh, he insisted. He said, I want you to come. He said, uh, no matter how you feel about it, he said, I want you in my place. So finally I agreed to go. And uh, I better say it uh, just so that no one got the wrong impression. It was a Presbyterian church. I love Presbyterians. We shall baptize all of them. Be a good thing. Uh, excuse me, Presbyterians. But I got in there. It was a lovely place. Lovely. Everything about it was beautiful. Oh, 200 years old portions of the building and part of the, and the pulpit stand, 200 years old. A lot of things just unique about it. And the night they took me into the church, walked around the building, walked to the back in the Sun School building, and a man was standing at the door, and he opened the doors, walked in, graciously bowed down with his coat and towel, and I thought that was good. I'd never had that happen in Chattanooga, of course, but I thought it was nice. I'd like to suggest it to my deacons, but I, think, I don't think it'll take it up. But uh, yeah, we walked inside. When we got inside, the man reached over to a, a rack on this side and pulled down a beautiful big black robe and put it around his pastor. And the pastor looked at me suddenly, quickly, he said, Brother Robertson, he said, I didn't ask you, but he said, uh, uh, do you wear a robe? I said, no, just a double-breasted suit, the same one I've worn all these uh, 35, 40 years, same thing. He said, well, I better not wear one either, so I put it aside. 
We walked out in the pulpit. Here's what he said. He walked in the pulpit. He said, this is the first time in 25 years I walked in the pulpit without a robe on. The first time in 25 years. I said, it won't hurt at all. You watch and see. You'll feel just as good after it's all over. And I walked in this side. I preached my sermon, and I hadn't asked any questions. I preached my sermon, went down the line, gave an invitation, and down the aisle came people getting saved. And they said, we want to be saved. And when they came down the front, uh, he did the only thing he knew I do. He turned to me and said, what do I do now? I said, win them to the Lord, get them saved. When it was all over, it came to me again, a good man, a gracious man. I'm not, not criticizing, I'm just trying to give a story that I think will make you see what I'm getting at. He said, I've never done that before, never one single invitation. I said, how do you witness to people? He said, invite them to come to see me in my study. And he said, a few come, every year a few come, just a few. And he said, I've never done anything else than that. That's been my, my way of doing it all of the time. Oh, my dear friends, listen, the preacher is a watchman. And we've got to be watching all of the time, preaching the Word of God, exhorting men to repent and believe and be saved. I've been preaching 48 years in all. 48 plus. Some things I wish I could un undo. I wish I could go back once again and speak to Fred Long. Maybe I shouldn't give his name. But I failed so miserably. I went in and see him one day in the hospital and... Uh, got to his bedside and he said, uh, if you don't mind, Dr. Robertson, come back another day. He said, I'm busy now and I'm not feeling well. And he was a very, very sick man. And I said, all right, sir, I'll, I'll go. And so I left. Two days later, came back in the room and he's sitting up in the bed. And he said, Brother Robertson said, said I'm getting along all right. He said, don't talk to me now, just put it off. He said, wait a while, I'm going to Florida. Spend a three weeks vacation. I'm coming back home the first Sunday I'm back. I'll be in church on the first Sunday morning. I'll give you my promise. Here's my hand. And like a fool, I took his hand and said, all right. And he said, that's all I want you to say. And he told me, he said, now nothing else. He said, it's all right. Don't, don't say a word. He said, I know what you want to say, but don't say it. I didn't say it. About two days after that, the phone rang. And the lady's voice, and crying, bitterly crying. And she said, oh, Brother Robertson said, please come. He said, Fred's dead. I said, well, man, Fred's in Florida. She said, no, no, we never went to Florida. He's too sick. He was too sick to go. And he came home and said, now nah, he's gone. He's dead. He said, would you come at once? I got in my car and drove down to the house. Walked inside, the undertaker hadn't arrived, the doctor hadn't arrived, and I walked inside and walked in the bedroom, and there was lying the man that I had failed to witness to on two occasions. I had failed altogether. Oh, yes, he told me not to. He said, wait, it'll be all right, but I'd failed. I should have done something, but I didn't do it. When I had the funeral service, she asked me to have the service. And then he said, the service at the funeral home, and got in the car to drive out with a funeral procession out to the graveyard. Never will forget it. We drove down the highway through Rossville, Georgia, down Highway 27 toward Rome. And about 15, 20 miles down the road, the cars turned off the main highway onto a little country road. Then a few moments paused again and turned to the right. There was a, a sign over the, over the, over the road, a cemetery, a certain old country cemetery, and we drove inside. And as we drove inside, I've never witnessed anything like it in my life. There came a downpour of rain. It rained. I, it, it was a thunder burst. Just everything seemed to drop out upon the earth. We sat there in the cars. Fifteen, twenty minutes went by. And finally the undertakers came back and said to me, he said, we're going to take the body out in the, in the casket put over next to the grave and leave it there. And we'll go back home and come back a little later and have a service here at the grave, at the graveside. If you want to come back, you may do so. I said, uh, no, I'll get, go with you. I was so in a conviction because of my failure and dressed just as I'm dressed right now. With the same type of suit, the same color suit, and just as I am, without an overcoat or raincoat or hat or anything, I got out with my Bible in hand. 
It ruined my Bible. The rain so burst upon the, uh, on the pages that it was stuck together with the, with the wetness. But I went to the side of the grave, and they ran back to the shelter and under a tree, and the rain was pouring down. And I made God a promise I'd never do that again. I said, oh, Lord, don't let me fail and make that mistake again, of failing to witness to somebody, someone who needs Jesus. And I'd fail to even give a clear witness at all of his need of Christ and the way of salvation. Now, what am I saying? Number one, every preacher is to be a watchman. Every minister of the gospel, everyone who knows Christ, every single one is to be a witness. Secondly, every church is a lighthouse. Every church is a lighthouse. That's the way your church should be known. Oh, you say, but if I'm that way, the people wouldn't like me. That's right, they may not like your church. But you make sure they understand what you stand for. Let them know what your business is. And that you're there to get people saved. And this is the urgent work of your heart and soul, morning, noon, and night, all of the time, that people might be saved. The church is to be shining as a lighthouse. Most churches don't have much power. They fail. Where is the power of the church? Where is the power of the New Testament church? First of all, it's in the Word of God. Amen? In the Word of God. The Word of God. I feel no embarrassment whatsoever in any company of people anywhere in the world to say to you that I believe the Bible from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation. Not one said a single bit of embarrassment. This is the Word of God and this is what I hold and preach. Adherent. Adhere to the Word of God. Again, the power of a local church is in her devotion to separated living. Separated living. This is essential. Separated living. Consecrated living. Separated from the world. Oh, how we need this. Thirdly, the power of the New Testament church is in her submission to the Holy Spirit. Let Him guide us. Let Him show us what to do. He will do so. Give Him a chance. And fourth, the power of a local church is in her zeal for the lost. And we should have a passion for souls night and day. Now you check your church. Do you adhere to the Word of God? Do you stand for separation? Do you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Do you have a zeal for the lost? Are you seeking to get people to the Savior? Is this your business day by day? A church is to be a lighthouse, shining all the time. Back when I began my ministry, my first church is in Memphis, Tennessee. Not very far from the Bellevue Baptist Church out in Germantown. And back in those days, when I was just a boy preacher, I had Dr. Lee to come and preach in the church often on Sunday afternoon when I was pastor of this little country church. Made up mind what I want. Number one, I said I want my church to be evangelistic. I didn't know much about it. Never heard of Dr. John Rice. Never heard of his ministry and his work. And so I just began, just began plodding away. I said, but I want my church to be evangelistic. And in every service, I'm going to give an invitation. Every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and urge people to come forward and be saved. Secondly, I said I want my church to be generous. A generous. I believe in a generous church. Not, not for my sake. I have an established salary that's been the same for all of these years. Never has been changed. Never will be changed. Don't want to change. We support 337 missionaries right now. Foreign missionaries. 337. We have 76 chapels around the city of Chattanooga. 76 in, in and out of the city. Two rescue missions. Big work in Camp Joy, radio ministry and other things. Now that's just what I'm trying to make you see is this, that a generous church where the people give as the Bible teaches, if they're tithers and faithfully tithe, that God will bless abundantly, will take care of every need. A generous church, it should be that way. Again, I want the church to be missionary. Missionary. 
In spirit, in practice, all of the time. Missionary, getting the gospel out, sending people out, sending the missionaries to the ends of the earth. This is the task that God has given us. We're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We must not fail. I was up in West Virginia, and a little pastor came to me at the end of a meeting. He said, Brother Robertson, I want you to pray about something. He said, the men of my church met last night, the men of the church, deacons and others, he said. They voted last night that we had given no, no moment to missions until we had built and paid for an educational building. Well, I said, is, is the building about finished now? Oh, he said, no, sir, we haven't even bought the land yet. He said, have to buy the land and make the plans and build the building and take five, six years maybe to get built. And they said, put out all missionary giving, all missionary giving, until we get the building built and paid for. He said, what would you do? I said, I'd go home and preach. I'd preach on the Great Commission. I'd preach it every Sunday. I'd serve up fires. I said, I'd have something happen, be some kind of revival. Either you'll stay or they'll kick you out one or two. You're going to have trouble maybe, but I'd go and preach. Give the message of Jesus. Wait a minute. That's the only thing you can do. We're to be missionary. And I found out something years ago in the work of the church. And as a pastor, I can testify to this. If I'll stay in God's business, what He wants me to do, He'll take care of the rest of it. If I'll stay in His business, what He wants me to do, what He prescribes for my life and my ministry, then He'll take care of the rest of it. If I'll do what He says, His business will not fail. Missionary church. Get a vision. Get a vision. Get a vision of what can be done. Get a vision. Challenge your church. Get your young people going. Put them in schools where they can be trained for missionary service. Send them out to the fields around the world. But I'm going to say so number three. In the third place, every Christian is a watchman. First, every preacher is a watchman. Secondly, every church is a lighthouse. Thirdly, every Christian is a watchman. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. It echoes throughout the entire Word of God from the first to the last. We are our brother's keeper. And he, Andrew, brought him, Simon Peter, to Jesus, and we're to be in the bringing business. That's soul winning. And he brought him to Jesus. And this is our task. Now, how can we win? We can win by prayer. And we ought to pray. And pray more. Dr. Rice made reference to this audience here tonight. This is tremendous. This is great. About our midweek prayer service. God does bless it. We believe in prayer. We run, we run even thousands in prayer meeting Wednesday after Wednesday. The same way, never vary, never change. The choir sings. The usher is usher. The offering is received. The prayer time is given. We, we have the message from the Word of God. But we build on the idea of prayer. This matter of praying for others and praying for people who are sick and those who are shut-ins and praying for the lost and praying for those who have needs. And this is our business to pray for others. My dear friend, you'll never know what miracles may be wrought. If you'd spend more of your time, just simply give more of your time in praying for other people. I never will forget when Dr. Ernest Wadsworth came to our church and spoke two nights years ago. A great man of prayer, then past 80 years of age. And I met him and shook hands with him, that's about all, and he was gone. And uh, I later was in Chicago, and I went around to see him. He had his office in the old Moody Bible Institute building. I went around to see him. When I walked inside... I sat on this, before his desk, I said, uh, Dr. Wadsworth, my name is Lee Robertson. I'm from Chattanooga. You were there some time ago and asked you to pray for me. I said, sir, if you've been doing that, if you've been praying for me, he picked up by the side of his, of his desk a little notebook and began turning the pages. He turned around to me in a few moments and said, look there. I looked and on the notebook was number 473, 
And beside the 473 was my name. I said, what do you mean, sir? He said, when you asked me to pray for you, I put your name down. He said, I've been praying for you every day since I was in Chattanooga. Every day. He said, I've called your name to God and asked God to bless you and to help you. And he said, I'd like to ask a question. Has God been answering my prayers? And I could tell him, oh, yes, many, many have been saved and great things have happened. He said, that's all I want to know. Wait a minute. You keep on praying, huh? Keep on praying. Every child of God is to be a watchman and pray and pray and seek the salvation of others. But pray for people. Pray that God will move and will save souls. Or do what ought to be done. Once in a while we see the name of Hyman Appleman getting in the sword of the Lord and maybe a sermon of Hyman. I never will forget one time, Hyman's a great preacher. A lot of you know that. He's a great preacher. I had him come to Bessemer, Alabama once for a big meeting in the, in the city auditorium, the biggest thing we had there. And he came to Bessemer for a two weeks revival campaign. He preached on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. After the Wednesday night service, a little committee came to see me, a committee of preachers. They said, Brother Robertson, would you please go to Hyman? He's your friend. Would you tell him we like his preaching? We like him, but we don't like his invitation. That's the worst invitation in the world. Hyman would always do it the same way. Back in the old days, guess he still does now. Raise your hand if you want to get saved. If you're not lying about it, stand up. If you're not a dirty crook, walk down the aisle. Now, I'm just making up some words there, but I'm not far wrong, am I? And uh, I can see that you've been around Hyman. So you know what? They said, uh, we want you to go and talk to him and tell him we don't like the invitation. I said, no, sir, you go talk to him yourself. I'm not going to tell that Jew anything. <laughs> and I meant that. I meant that. So they went to see him. They said, all right, we'll go and see him. They went to the uh, hotel in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, big steel city on the edge of Birmingham, and went in the hotel, and they found his room number. They walked down the hallway. When they got near his room, they heard a sound of voices. They said he must have company, so they stood and listened a while. And they heard the voices coming, and they said, that we'll wait a while. They waited 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, waited, and still the voice went on. They said, we can't wait long. Let's go see what's wrong. And let's go in there and just talk to him and tell him what we want him to do. We're ahead of this revival meeting, and we want him to do so-and-so. Cut out that invitation like he's doing it now, and sing just as I am and get on the way. So a little while, they walked up and pushed the door open. And they got inside. They saw Hyman Appleman down on his knees. Now, this actually happened. Had in his arms a great big overstuffed chair like they used to have in hotels years ago. Remember the old-fashioned chairs, overstuffed chairs? He had an overstuffed chair. He was on his knees, overstuffed chair up over his head like this, holding it there, the big chair, heavy chair. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over and continue on side two. He was calling upon God and praying and the perspiration rolling down his face. And he said, Oh God, save the people of Bessemer. Send a revival of this town and pour down his heart. He'd been praying like that apparently for 25 to 30 minutes. Those three men eased out of there. They came back and told me, he said, we decide not to talk to him. Ah, listen to me. God sent a revival to Bessemer, I suppose the first one, and maybe the only one the city's ever had. It's, a, it's been a hard city. I've been around there a lot. And they had a revival, but it came because of a man praying and seeking the face of God and asking God for definite things. These things took place. Now, every Christian's a watchman. You're a watchman. And you're to pray. You're to pray. I get a little tired of folks. I was up in church the other day, and I had more people come to me. 
You know what they kept saying? They said, our church needs revival. Pray for our church to have revival. Pray for this, that. I said, wait a minute. Revivals all start in the same place in individual heart. And if you have a revival, it's got to start with you. Don't criticize your pastor. Don't criticize the deacons. You start and pray, oh God, send revival to my heart and stir me. I might pray and seek the face of God. Be a watchman by prayer. Again, be a watchman by true living for Christ. True living for Christ. Show forth the Lord Jesus Christ. Let others see Jesus in you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. By your true living. Live for Christ. Live for Christ. Live for Christ. What amazing things would happen. What amazing things if God's people just live for the Lord. What amazing things if just the fundamentalists here tonight in this meeting would live for God as they ought to live for God. I went to my first church in Memphis, Tennessee, and I heard about a fellow that I want to win to the Lord. And so I didn't have a better sense. I just went to his home. I was a young preacher, didn't have much fear, and, and so I said, I'll go to see him. His wife and, and daughter belonged to our church. I walked in the beautiful home out on the edge of Memphis, and this fellow was a big attorney and a big shot in the city. And I walked in and sat down. And I said, sir, I've come to talk to you about Jesus. And after I talked for a few moments, he stopped me. He said, wait a minute. He said, I like what you've said, but he said, it would be refreshing to see just one person live for Christ. And when he said that, his wife and daughter burst in tears and rushed from the room. It would be refreshing to see just one person live for Jesus Christ. You see, the wife and the daughter have not been living for the Savior. Everything fails unless you show forth Christ by true living, true living, true living. I was holding a revival in Birmingham, Alabama. And the pastor said to me, I want you to go visit a man. We got in his car and drove to the south side of the city and up to an apartment house up in the building. Knocked on the door, a lady came to the door and he said, Miss so-and-so, we're here to talk to your husband. He said, this Brother Robertson, he's in, in a revival with us and we want to talk to him. And uh, said, she said, well, come on in. He got, he's getting dressed now. He just got home from work, but he'll be here in just a second. So we came and sat down. We, he came in, and when he got inside, nice looking fellow. And the wife belonged to the church, said she was a Christian. And uh, he sat there. And uh, So in a few moments, I took my Bible and began to deal with him. I said, sir, you need Christ. He smiled and said, no, no, I don't need him. He said, I've got anything you've got, anything anybody else got. He said, I don't need, need what you have at all. So we talked about it. Well, I said, sir, would you mind dealing with me in prayer? He said, no, I don't want to pray. He said, you can pray. But he said, uh, I, I'm not going to pray. He said, I'm, I don't believe in what you believe in. But I said, well, come on, kneel with me anyway. So he knelt. I prayed that God would save him, that God would convict his, his heart of sin, make him see his lost condition, and turn to the Savior. And when he finished my prayer, he got up with a smile on his face, sat back in the chair. Didn't touch him at all. I went on talking. He didn't have much time. I took my Bible. I said, sir, you're a lost man. The soul that sinned, if it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The one who given the word of God. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And I kept driving it home. He said, I know, but he said, I'm not ready. He said, I'm not interested. I'm not interested at all. I said, let's pray again. He said, no, I prayed. I got knelt with you one time. I wouldn't kneel again. I said, wouldn't hurt you to kneel again. Now, he said, I don't believe I'll do it. So I knelt down on the floor and I said, would you kneel on my side? He said, no, sir, no need. But I begged him. I begged him. And finally, that big fellow got out of the chair and knelt by my side. I began to pray. I poured out my heart to God to save his soul. Oh, how I was praying. I was so concerned. I wanted to see the man saved. I was there for that purpose, for that business. And I poured out my heart. And as I was pouring out my heart, he was kneeling by my side. All of a sudden, I heard a noise. And then a sound of, of a voice. I couldn't help it. I stopped my prayer and looked up. And across the room, the wife 
had dropped out of her chair, down upon the, on the carpet, on her knees, and was counting the carpet with her hands, and had her head down, burnt in the, in the floor, and was crying, Oh God, he's lost and it's my fault. If he goes to hell, it's my fault. And she cried and cried and cried. Then she started confessing her sins. She said, I've done the same thing he's done. I've gone to the same places he's gone to. And said, Oh God, forgive me. I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. And she cried and asked God's forgiveness. And while she was praying, I couldn't help but look over toward him. Looked over toward him. The big tears were coursing down his cheeks. And I turned and said, Sir, do you want to get saved? He said, Yes, sir. I'd like to be saved right now. Right now. Are you listening to something? I've been to Birmingham, I suppose, 25 times. 25 times in meetings. And every time I've gone, I've had two people there in every audience who had walked down the front. This man is white. He'd always walk up and say this. He said, Brother Robertson, do you remember me? I couldn't forget the guy. I said, certainly, sir. Every time. And that night it happened. That night he came to the church and walked down the aisle, made his confession of faith, and followed the Lord in baptism. You see, my friend, you've got to live for Christ. And your Sunday religion won't do it. Sunday will not do it. It's got to be Monday, Tuesday, every day. Number three, and finally, we've got to warn people by witnessing. Every child of God is a watchman. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. Acts 1.8 A Sunday school teacher pointed me to the Lord. Her name is Mrs. Daisy Hawes. She died last year. She was 96 years of age. 96. But an unbelievable Sunday school teacher pointed me to Jesus. It doesn't make any difference what I do in, in the Highland Park Baptist Church and Tennessee Temple Schools. It doesn't matter. What may happen there, she's got a part in all of it. Boy, you think of that. Every soul saved, everything that happens. Mrs. Daisy Hall's a little humble Sunday school teacher with a big Bible in her hand, size of this one here, the same way every Sunday. You know how she start off? This is it. Teachers get it. How many Sunday school teachers here tonight? Raise your hand. All the Sunday school teachers, put them up high. All right. Listen to this. Here's how she begins. How many of you boys are saved? The first Sunday she said that, I laughed. I laughed at her. They put their hands up and I laughed. Saved. What did she mean by that? I was a smart aleck in high school. Then she went on and explained what she meant by being saved. Gave a clear message. The second Sunday came back, and the same thing again. How many of you boys are saved? They raised their hands. I couldn't raise mine. I didn't laugh near as loud the second time, though. Then it's the second time the Sunday school walked out of there. But my dear friends, after that second Sunday morning, I was under conviction. And upon my knees in a little four-room country home on the edge of Louisville, Kentucky, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I went forward in church the next Sunday. I walked down the aisle the next Sunday. I took my stand for Christ the next Sunday. And when I did, my mother and father followed me down the same aisle. I've got a strange and wonderful testimony. It's not, not strange. I, I'm sure it's not because many of you have the same one. But some people do not. I've never had a doubt about my salvation from that day to this. I've never doubted one single time. Praise God. Jesus Christ is my Savior. I know He's mine. I've received Him as my Savior. Warn people by witnessing. Tell people about Jesus Christ and His power to save. Stay with the gospel. Stay with the message of Christ. And stay with it all of the time. Sometimes we fail. I suppose I'm impressed to say this because of the great number of preachers here tonight. I'm skipping some of the things that I want to bring in. But I suppose this comes to my mind. I was holding a revival meeting, a big tent meeting, outside of Birmingham, Alabama. It was a beautiful tent. Seat over 2,000 people. Crowds were coming in front of the Concord Church. 
I stood to preach like I am here in the pulpit, and back of me on the front was a state highway running right in front of the road of the church of the tent. I stood up to give my message on one evening when I stood up with Bible in hand. Down the highway came a boy on a motorcycle. And when he got the motorcycle right at the back of the tent, he slowed the thing down and shouted, Hallelujah! Praise God! Amen! He was laughing at the service. The people, some looked around. Most of them didn't, do, didn't move, just looked at me. I went on and read my text. I heard that motorcycle go down the road and turned around about a half mile away. Had an open exhaust. Oh, it was loud. It cracked and popped, and he turned the thing around and started back down the highway. When he got down the highway, right in back of the tent again, I could see him. They couldn't see him. They were facing me. And as the motorcycle got in the back, he slowed down, very slow. And again, raised his voice and shouted, Hallelujah! Praise God! Amen! Went on his way. I preached my sermon. Gave an invitation. I gave an invitation. Down the aisle came the first ones down the aisle that night, a man and a woman and a young lady in her twenties. In that big tent, oh, it was a big thing, all the way across the front. We had an altar built, and I'm not against that at all. I like it. Pretty good place to pray for sinners, isn't it? And they came down. These three came first and knelt down. I went down my Bible and led all three to the Lord, the man and his wife and the daughter. And others came that night and were saved. When the service over, a man came up to me. He said, say, you know who you led to the Lord tonight? I said, no, sir, I don't. Just met him there at the, at the altar. He said, that's the mother and father and sister of the boy riding the motorcycle out in the front. He said, that boy's never been to church, never been inside of the house of God. He's a lost sinner going to hell. He said, just like the parents were and the sister until tonight. And he said, that boy's the one riding down there making that noise and shouting out, Hallelujah, praise God, Amen. Well, I said, I'll sure see him tomorrow. I'll sure see him tomorrow. But my friend, I didn't get to see him. That very night, at one o'clock in the morning, on the highway from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa, he was riding that motorcycle at high speed, apparently high speed. It left the highway, struck a tree, and that boy was killed instantly. Instantly. I never got to talk to him. The next morning I heard the message and the pastor called me. He said, uh, Brother Robertson, you'll have to go to the family. Go down and see the family. I said, no, sir, I'm not going. I said, what can I say? Mother and father and sister got saved last night. And this boy killed the same night, one o'clock in the morning. I said, what can I say to them? He said, you'll have to go. So late in the afternoon I went to the home, a country home, a two-story white country home. I went up to the door, knocked on the door. No one opened the door when I knocked, and so I stepped inside. Inside the big living room of that country home, there was a casket of that boy. I walked over to the castle, looked him on the face of that boy for the first time. I'd heard his voice, but never had seen his face. Placed upon the, in the casket in death. Then the father came in, grabbed my arm, and said, Brother Robertson, lost the best friend I ever had in the world. My boy was my best friend. I couldn't say a thing. The mother came on the other side and said, Oh, Brother Robertson, I lost my son. Oh, how sweet, how good he was. I couldn't say a thing. The sister came in and said, Oh, how much I loved him. And we were such pals and such friends and said, This is awful. He's gone. I couldn't say a thing. I said, Let's have a word of prayer. We prayed together. When I finished my prayer, the father spoke up and said, Brother Robertson, he said, Would you mind if we had conducted a funeral service in the tent? I said, You may have it in the tent, but I'll not be there. I want to make sure right away that I didn't have to get in that. I said, I'll not be there. But he said, we'd like to have it. So Sunday afternoon, they had it in the tent. Sunday afternoon, and the pastor preached. And many people were saved. Many were saved. God blessed and helped so much. I came back to church that night. This part I want you to get. I preached my sermon that Sunday evening in that revival campaign. I finished up the message and stood to the front. And the pastor came up and he was broken hearted, tears flowing down his face. 
He said, Brother Robertson, I think you know it by now, but I live on the same road, road with that family. I go by that home of that mother and father and sister and brother every day. I come to church that way, I go home that way. And for years and years, I pass by that home day after day, day after day I've gone. Morning, noon, and night I've gone by. I never one time stopped to tell those people about Jesus. And he said, I feel that I have bloody hands. Because of my failure, he did have bloody hands. He did have. He said, I failed my God. I never one time witnessed to the boy. I never stopped to see them, though I went by day after day. Have you been passing people by? Have you been endeavoring to be a soul winner? Or do you have bloody hands? Bloody hands. If I fail, if I fail, bloody hands. If I warn them, if I give the message of Jesus, then it's in his hands. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to the close of this first portion of this evening. We pray to speak to our hearts. Make this to be a moment, a solemn moment, when we'll all rededicate our lives to be soul winners, to be what God wants us to be. Oh, come tonight and bless. Bless every preacher. Bless every Sunday school teacher. Bless every deacon. Bless every church member. Bless every child of God in this building. And help them to see what it is to witness and have pure hands, clean hands, free from the guilt of others. Help us to be faithful witnesses. Bless and have your way.